Welcome to an exciting forum of alternative viewpoints and balanced ideas. This is Good Morning Canada with Nav and Nav. That's Nav C and Nav M. Confused? Don't be, because two halves always become one. Now join us for an energized hour of global viewpoints and shared ideas, only for you. Now, here are your hosts, Nav and Nav. Hello and welcome to Good Morning Canada. I'm your host, Nav M, and welcome to another hour of Alternative Viewpoints. In recent decades, the term mass incarceration has been closely associated with the disproportionate growth of the prison population in the United States. When we review what percentage of the US population is incarcerated, the figures reveal some staggering results. Around 0.7% of the United States is currently in a federal or state prison or a local jail. And when viewed from another perspective, this figure is close to 1% or one out of every 100 people in the population. And when these small fractions are magnified in a global context, they are seen in an altogether different light because the United States represents only 5% of the global population, yet holds nearly 20% of the world's prison population, meaning that one in five incarcerated individuals in the world are from the United States. According to figures from non-profit social advocacy group prisonpolicy.org in their 2020 report entitled Mass Incarceration, the Whole Pie, dated March 14th, 2022. And as of July 2021, the United States had the highest number of incarcerated individuals worldwide, with 2.1 million people in prison, which represents 639 prisoners per 100,000 residents, according to figures from Statista.com. The United States was followed by China, Brazil, India and the Russian Federation. And this eye-opening figure of 2.1 million people under incarceration represents a near doubling since the 1990s and a quadrupling since the 1980s. The issue of mass incarceration has gradually established itself within the vocabulary of mainstream political discourse in the United States and has become a widely contested issue because it has a disproportionate effect on marginal communities. In addition, the prison system is now heavily funded by capital from large private corporations, but there is still a high cost to taxpayers. Furthermore, there has been a steady upscale in the operation of private prisons since the early 1990s, leading to intense scrutiny of the US criminal justice system arising from issues such as the use of poorly trained staff and widespread lobbying. To complicate matters further, the US does not have a single criminal justice system, but instead has various levels of federate, state, local and tribal systems. By far the largest segment of those individuals incarcerated in the US, around 1.8 million people, can be found in state and federal prisons as well as local jails. Prison facilities in the US are mainly operated under state or federal jurisdiction where those convicted, usually for felonies, are sent to serve their sentences. On the other hand, jails are city or county-run facilities where the vast majority of people locked up actually end up and this represents around one in three of the total incarcerated population. And these individuals are waiting trial. In other words, they're still classed as legally innocent, but they cannot afford to post bail. Furthermore, the United States is also home to the world's largest private prison population. 
A private prison is a third-party institution contracted by the local state and federal government. The government pays a monthly rate per incarcerated person housed at such private institutions. The majority of privately operated prisoners are in the south and the west part of the United States and include state and federal level defendants. The largest private prison corporations, Core Civic and GEO Group, collectively manage over half of the private prison contracts in the United States with combined revenues of 4.5 billion US dollars based on 2019 figures from the website prisonlegalnews.org. Of the 1.6 million people in state and federal prison in the USA, 8% are housed in privately operated prisons, according to 2019 figures from the non-profit social advocacy group sentencingproject.org. They report that for the period 2000 to 2016, the number of people housed in private prisons increased five times faster than the total prison population. And over the same period, the proportion of people detained in private immigration facilities increased by 442%, compared to an overall rise in the prison population of 3%. The federal government is the largest single user of private prisons in the United States, but this population has reduced in recent years from its peak of 137,000 in 2012, which then declined to 126,000 in 2015, before rising again in 2016 to 128,000. In a bid to improve systemic structural problems in the US criminal justice system, the current US President Joe Biden signed an executive order in January 2021 to reform the incarceration system with the aim of eliminating, quote, the use of privately operated criminal detention facilities. And therefore, by not renewing contracts with private prisons, the Biden administration hopes to reduce profit-based incentives to incarcerate and ultimately lower inmate levels. And this is an issue which I will review at a later point, but the main focus of today's episode will be the dramatic changes in the US prison system that resulted from privatization and deregulation. This rapid transformation first began during the 1970s and 1980s due to advocation that private companies could perform public tasks cheaper and more efficiently using the framework of neoliberalism as an all-encompassing ideology which favours individual responsibility based on market forces as opposed to collective or state intervention. And this is a very important theme which I've covered numerous times in recent episodes. It's also important to remember that political influence has been highly instrumental in determining the growth of for-profit private prisons. So much so that the figure for the US prison population incarcerated in private prisons now stands at 115,428 people based on 2019 figures from sentencingproject.org. And this figure now represents 8% of the total state and federal prison population. By itself, it seems comparatively small, but when placed in context against the remaining 92% of prisoners in public institutions, this represents an increase of 32% since the year 2000 when compared to a rise in the prison population of only 3%. And despite the current trend of modest declines, which was mentioned earlier, 
If this trend continues due to the Biden executive order, then the privatization debate will most likely be ratcheted up again. And that's because if opportunities for the private prison industry dry up, this means corrections companies will seek profit targets elsewhere in other areas of the criminal justice system, such as immigration detention. But before discussing this particular issue, let's first examine how the US criminal justice system reached such staggering levels of incarceration. And let's start with the earliest form of profiteering from US prisons, the convict lease system. The most important shift in America's incarceration system began in the 19th century when slavery was outlawed using the 13th Amendment of the US Constitution. The end of slavery drastically altered the economic outlook because it brought an end to the availability of cheap labor, specifically slave labor, which had been the economic base of the economy in the south of the United States. However, the phrasing of the 13th Amendment also authorized and enacted the term involuntary servitude in cases of punishment against crime. This legitimization of forced labor as a form of punishment created a new role for the prison system in America. Prisons essentially became businesses and were now given the authority to employ slave labor for economic gain using a system known as convict leasing. This involved the act of selling prison labor to private businesses to fill the economic void left by the absence of slavery. The practice of convict leasing accelerated at this time because of two important socioeconomic changes. Firstly, the huge social burden and economic devastation created by the defeat of the Confederacy, which required a rapid rebuilding of the economy. And secondly, the abolition of slavery, which had a major effect on the traditional plantation system of the Old South. By depleting access to a cheap labor force, this prompted the search for a system to replace slave labor within a highly labor-intensive economy. Hence, the exploitation of prisoners and their labor was an obvious target. The convict leasing system retained its presence in the US system of incarceration until the 1920s in order to exert social control over black Americans and was achieved mainly through the mass imprisonment of former slaves for petty crimes. While prison labor had once been viewed as a means for discipline, it now became an important income source for state governments. Blacks were redeployed into the prison system using criminal statutes such as vagrancy and loitering, which could be applied in virtually any situation. The convict leasing system perpetuated an endless supply of cheap labor as a form of exploitable capital, allowing the struggling states of the South to rebuild their economic and institutional infrastructure. The convict leasing system was eventually phased out because prisoners transitioned from originally being a source of cap economic capital to becoming unfair competition in the labor market. The main complaints during the early 1900s were heard from organized labor due to the unfair economic advantage created by a rival system of labor provided by these convicts. The system was eventually changed to an operation of change gangs performing public works or plantation work to raise crops for the state. And over the next few decades, the closure of the convict lease system created financial problems for various US states because they could no longer reap the profits from selling cheap labor to companies. And also, they were unable to share the administrative costs with their network of trusted contractors. 
Equally, though, prisons were failing in their responsibility to maintain the necessary standards required for their burgeoning incarcerated population. The resulting situation would eventually create a perfect opportunity for the privatization of prisons based on two main factors. Reason number one was the ideological fervor created by the election of new political leaders in the late 1970s, arguing for a scaling back of government intervention and the outsourcing of public services to private businesses. And reason number two was the the massive growth of the prisoner population in the US due to high profile political agendas such as the war on drugs and crime. So let's begin by examining the first reason, which is the increased ideological support for privatization of prisons. The 1970s were characterized by a shift in opinion towards accepting privatization as a new form of public policy tool, primarily to wrestle control from public institutions. And this was mainly due to the emergence of neoliberalism as a mainstream ideology, which advocated a strong economic and political agenda in support of major austerity cutbacks in public utilities and social welfare provisions. This shift towards privatization brought several important issues into the wider sphere of public debate. For instance, the debate over privatization had a direct bearing on issues such as state sovereignty over key areas, such as the administration of justice or law and order. And in the case of private prisons, there was and still is contentious debate over contracting out what is generally considered to be a prime government function. Consequently, a shift in attitudes combined with a historical change in the political environment created strong headwinds, ushering in a growth period of prison privatization, which began in earnest during the 1980s. The first fully operational private prison in the US at state level, the Marion Adjustment Center, opened in Kentucky in 1986. However, going back to the early 1970s, there was a surge in ideological support for adopting an anti-government stance and the advocacy of privatization based on a neoliberal net. According to David Harvey in his 2007 book, A Brief History of Neoliberalism, argues that the ideology of neoliberalism gained legitimacy in the West following the election of monetarist-style politicians such as Margaret Thatcher in the UK, whose main mandate was to curb the power of the unions and legislate greater financial deregulation. Similarly, the election of Ron Reagan set the US on course to curb the power of organized labor, deregulate industry, and liberate the financial system on a global scale. And from these political epicenters, the new message which reverberated in the corridors of power was that the era of welfare and income security were over, ushering in the neoliberal ideology of fend for yourself. President Reagan argued that big government was the main reason for the widespread social and economic problems stemming back to the Great Depression of the 1930s. In particular, the the neoliberal aversion to big government projects involving excessive spending, reliance on social welfare programs and a system which sidelined incentives for institutional investors. Therefore, only free market competition could successfully reduce administrative costs and improve the prison service. Gradually, the agenda to privatize prisons transcended the support base of the political right and gained a consensus 
with traditional liberal Democrats, thus creating an ideal opportunity for the neoliberal agenda to establish itself and grow during the 1970s and 1980s. Essentially, the political strategy in favour of prison privatisation would not have been possible without an ideological drive in favour of free market forces primarily against big government. And this paradigm shift towards privatisation as a means for economic improvement eventually became part of the established policy platform of President Ronald Reagan, colloquially expressed as Reaganomics, This became mainstream economic thought during the 1980s, typified by President Reagan's economic policies of giving tax cuts to the wealthy. The basic premise was that increased spending and investment by the privileged economic classes would lead to a trickle-down effect, which would eventually benefit and be transferred to the remainder of society. Of major significance in this political agenda were large-scale tax cuts for corporations, combined with decreased regulation. Also, major expenditure cuts on federal initiatives such as criminal justice and rehabilitation programs. This important shift in policymaking and also public opinion set the stage for the acceptance of prison privatization in America and the advocacy of the neoliberal framework. So let's now turn our attention to the second major factor which led to the privatization of prisons, which is the massive rise in prison population caused by key political agendas such as the war on drugs and crime. The massive underfunding of prisons in the aftermath of the convict lease system represented a huge administrative burden on the federal government. And from the early 1900s through to the 1970s, The incarceration rate had remained stable. However, President Nixon's law and order drive ushered in a new era of get tough on crime policies, which had a lasting effect for several decades, giving rise to the shocking transformation towards mass incarceration. By enacting a variety of law and order policies that increased custodial sentences and incarcerated a greater number of people, the prison population began to multiply on an unprecedented scale. In 1971, President Richard Nixon declared his infamous war on drugs, which disproportionately affected black males in low-income neighbourhoods, setting the stage for a return to for-profit prisons. Government policy during the 1970s focused on the criminalisation of marijuana and a shift to mandatory sentencing. This led some commentators to argue that the new legislation was politically motivated by targeting minority communities and people of colour, representing a renewal of historical slavery and a resurrection of the outdated convict lease system. The war on drugs agenda introduced new policies that led to an upsurge of incarceration rates for non-violent drug-related crimes. Between 1980 and 1997, for example, the number of people incarcerated for non-violent drug-related crimes jumped from 50,000 to 400,000 people, according to the Bureau of Justice figures. The new round of draconian sentencing amounted to nothing more than an ethnically racialized war aimed at communities of color. And it inevitably led to highly inequitable outcomes for blacks and Latinos who were more likely to be criminalized for drug law violations than their white counterparts. Specific policies that had the greatest influence on increasing incarceration rates were, firstly, 
mandatory minimum sentencing laws which imposed unprecedented long sentences and prevented judges from exercising discretion in order to impose a more lenient punishment based on the circumstances of the crime and the individual's background and characteristics. Secondly, truth in sentencing laws, which sharply curtailed eligibility for pr probation and parole, thus ensuring that inmates remained in prison long after they had actually been rehabilitated. And of course, three strike laws. This was a particularly pernicious form of legislation, which subjected individuals convicted of three crimes to extremely long and harsh sentences. In one particular case heard by the US Supreme Court, a man charged with stealing golf clubs received a sentence of 25 years to life, according to a 2015 report by the American Civil Liberties Union entitled Banking on Bondage. Overall, long prison sentences which indicted offenders under the war against drugs agenda led to a major increase in both the levels of incarceration and those on probation ultimately leading to a sea change in public opinion. For instance, the percentage of Americans who saw drug-related crimes as a societal problem grew significantly. In 1985, the proportion of Americans polled who saw drug abuse as the nation's number one problem was only 2 to 6%. However, this figure increased dramatically throughout the 1980s, reaching a staggering 64% in September 1989. The ensuing political hysteria about drugs led to the enactment of even more severe penalties, further increasing the prison population. And interestingly, within the space of one year, support for addressing the war on drugs as a top priority fell to a mere 10% as the policies and rhetoric of the drugs war led to a growing belief that the federal government was unable to deal with the problem of rising mass incarceration by itself and led to calls for privatization as a long-term solution to address the government's prison policies. As authors Donna Salmon and Paul Leighton noted in their 2010 book entitled Punishment for Sale, Private Prisons, Big Business and the Incarceration Binge, quote, the ideology that business is more efficient than government led to a widespread acceptance that government mismanagement was creating inmate lawsuits rather than promoting the effectiveness of harsher sentencing policies. These sentiments supported the view that transferring prison operations into the hands of private companies was a sound economic move, similar to the system of convict leasing, which was also inspired by economic profit. Another important aspect of the war on drugs was that it shifted the emphasis of the criminal justice system towards rejecting rehabilitation as a desired social policy outcome. And this approach soon found favour with both the political left and right. The result was a wholesale shift towards the rise of the so-called prison warehouse era, accompanied by ever-increasing fixed sentences, particularly as the Republicans consolidated their power with their tough-on-crime rhetoric. So let's now turn our attention to how mass incarceration became institutionalised through media propagation. During the late 1970s and early 1980s, private industry represented a very small section of the commercial arm of the overall prison system. However, the gradual expansion of private industry first began with areas such as drug treatment, rehabilitation and juvenile offender programs. 
This provided the groundwork for the coming wave of privatisation that would focus on the incarceration of adult males. Quite simply, privatising prisons had a twofold purpose. Firstly, the expansion of profits and secondly, social control, which was achieved using the public rationale of the fight against crime. Similarly, under previous national fear campaigns such as the Red Scare of the post-war period, communism was propagated as society's number one existential enemy and the threat of communism was deployed to justify an unprecedented rollout of military expenditure. This was eventually replaced in the 1970s by the fear of crime and the demonization of criminals. This new campaign served a similar ideological purpose to justify the use of tax dollars for the repression and incarceration of a growing percentage of the American population. The ever-present media with its 24-7 news reporting facilities were able to bombard American families with sensationalized news stories about serial killers, missing children, and the constant presence of random violence to feed into society's fears. In reality though, most of the criminals that the United States incarcerated are people from low-income backgrounds that commit non-violent crimes out of economic necessity. For instance, according to a Pew Research report on crime statistics dated November 2020, property crime in the US is much more common than violent crime. In 2019, the FBI reported a total of 2,100 property crimes per 100,000 people, which represents 2% of the national population. This compares to 380 violent crimes per 100,000 people, which equates to four violent crimes per 1,000 people. Indeed, overall crime rates have plummeted during the period 1993 to 2019. And using FBI data, the violent crime rate fell 49% between 1993 and 2019, while property crime fell by 55% during the same period. And interestingly, this coincides with the period when the prison system began its massive expansion of privatization. In 20 out of 24 Gallup surveys conducted since 1993, at least 60% of US adults have said there is more crime nationally than there was the year before, despite the general downward trend in national violent and property crime rates during that period. And let's not forget the former US President Donald Trump had begun sounding the alarm about crime in America starting with the first day of his presidency, vowing to put an end to, quote, American carnage in his inaugural address of 2017. Furthermore, efforts to propagate a law and order response to crime issues continued throughout the 1980s and 1990s. For instance, in order to keep the public's attention focused on crime issues, media outlays generally gave preference to those sources that could bring in more viewers. Hence, politicians who employed a strong and powerful rhetoric calling for more and harsher penalties received greater attention. For instance, President George Bush Sr. gave a speech about the drug problem which he displayed a bag of crack cocaine that he said was purchased across the street from the White House. Media coverage such as this led to a rise in public concern. The 1990s television coverage of crime continued to garner the same reaction drug-related crime which occurred anywhere in the country would were deemed to be newsworthy events. The media helped to determine people's perceptions by focusing viewer attention on powerful emotive issues such as crime and deprivation. Also, the media used classic framing techniques in their news coverage by promoting fear and 
sensationalizing the value of conflict, which then attracts more viewers and potential advertising revenue. However, the media was also sending out other core messages that violence occurs randomly, helping to underscore the dangers inherent in contemporary society. There was also a concerted attempt to repetitively portray images of violent offenders while ignoring their social background. This overwhelmingly served to criminalize low-income black males and reinforce perceptions that drug crimes were getting worse and criminality was spiraling out of control. By continuously promoting the presence of drugs and crime to the American public, this strengthened the political resolve for a gradual shift towards privatization. As federal orders to improve prison conditions increased, state and local governments were keen to seek immediate answers on how to deal with these pressing social issues. However, this immediately led to a major problem because political careers and re-elections are traditionally won on get-tough campaign promises, but there was no space to house criminal offenders. And so the easiest solution was to allow private prisons to step into the void. Private prison arrangements are attractive to politicians and state representatives because the companies are able to build prisons quickly and without the need for voter approval. Lease purchase agreements are the most common type of arrangement in which the state signs a long-term lease for the prison and receives the title when the debt and finance charges are fully paid. Before the 1980s, Private prisons hardly existed, but the 1990s would witness the founding of companies that still dominate the prison industry today, including corporations such as GEO Group, CoreCivic, formerly Corrections Corporation of America, LaSalle Corrections, and Management and Training Corporation. And this has left the door wide open for private companies to generate significant profits within the private prison industry. Two firms stand out for their sheer size, Florida-based GEO Group with revenues of 2.48 billion US dollars in 2019 and Tennessee-based CoreCivic with revenues of 1.98 billion in 2019. The overcrowding of prisons that resulted from the war on drugs and the focus on law and order tactics created a need for efficiency and the dominant ideology of the time argued that private prisons could easily step in to provide these services. This desire for efficiency in the face of mass incarceration continues into the modern era. Indeed, there are several avenues through which private companies could, in principle, save costs relative to the public sector, including operational activities. But whether they do so in practice is a difficult question to test because data from private corporations is limited. However, I tend to return to this point shortly by examining the argument between accountability and efficiency. But first, I'd like to focus on the cornerstone of the prison privatization process, which is how neoliberalism gave rise to the prison industrial complex. Various commentators have discussed the effects of the privatization of prisons through a concept called the Prison Industrial Complex, or PIC for short, which is an all-encompassing term used to describe the overlapping interests of government and industry in relation to the surveillance, policing and imprisonment of prisoners as solutions to economic, social and political problems. It refers specifically to the US criminal justice system, which has been radically transformed by almost four decades of rapid growth and by placing private interests at the heart of criminal justice policy initiatives in pursuit of a perpetual economic cycle 
that encourages increased spending on imprisonment, even where there is no real need for further imprisonment. The prison industrial complex includes all levels of the privatization process, which has turned imprisonment into a profitable business and can be visualized as a system of contracts that have led to profits for multiple levels of business activity. As with the building and maintenance of weapons and armies, the building and maintenance of prisons represents big business. This includes investment houses, construction companies, architects, and the various support services such as food, medical and transportation facilities, which all stand to profit by prison expansion. Even specialty industries sell the hardware required to keep prisons under militarized control, such as fencing, handcuffs, drug detectors, protective vests, and other security devices for prisons. This system involves both large corporations and the government. According to authors Donna Selman and Paul Layton, this includes politicians as part of the prison industrial complex because they receive campaign contributions from businesses that are part of the system and also lobbyists that influence policies on behalf of the company's interests. This complex set of relationships that propagate the, the PIC can be visualized as a tripartite system of market participants involving government bureaucracy, politicians and industry. Each of these economic actors plays an important role in promoting efficiency and increase profits by perpetuating expenditure on the prison system. The network of private businesses involved in the PIC benefits from expanding prison populations in order to further increase their profits. Politicians benefit from maintaining the PIC because prisons create jobs for their constituents and their campaigns receive financial backing from the companies that they hire. Government bureaucracy benefits from contracting out prisons because it relieves them of the financial burden and administrative obligations towards the incarcerated. To sustain this tripartite network of economic interests requires direct influence at policy level due to the mutual dependence between private prisons and governments. This relationship is sustained because private prisons receive payments from the government on a contractual basis. The government pays a monthly rate per incarcerated person housed at the private institution. This leads to a focus on exactly how criminal justice policies are formulated because if governments are reliant on the investment from private companies to implement a for-profit system of incarceration, then equally the same companies will exert their influence on the policies that governments create. And to maintain this business model, private prisons require a constant stream of inmates to replace those that have already served their sentence. And there is a major incentive for private businesses to employ lobbyists to influence governments to sustain a policy framework that creates a steady influx of the criminal class ready for incarceration. The economic actors involved with the PIC each have an incentive not to lower incarceration rates due to the neoliberal ideology which prioritizes the primacy of market forces. And as such, the interests of investors creates a strong incentive to further the continuous expansion of private prisons. Their ongoing investment requires the need for private prisons to continue growing profits in order to sustain shareholder value. Ultimately, the tripartite system creates a revolving door between government and private business, whereby corporate investment supports the policy framework of politicians and vice versa. This relationship allows electoral politics to be influenced and tainted by corporate money, 
creating immunity for private prisons against democratic accountability and regulatory oversight. This represents a classic neoliberal transfer of wealth from the pri public to private sectors, as the PIC regulates the diversion of public funds to activities that increase corporate profits at the expense of taxpayers. And so now that we have an understanding of the role of neoliberalism in creating the PIC, this is a good juncture to ask what are the main concerns with the privatization of prisons? The US prison system in its present form raises a host of concerns in relation to social, philosophical and ethical issues concerning prison privatization. And these include questions of political impropriety, economic cost and efficiency, the security of inmates and staff, social liability, accountability and transparency. And while all of these various aspects of the prison system are important, in the next section I'd like to examine four major critiques which will help to shed light on the controversy surrounding the prison privatization debate. So critique one of the prison privatization is the issue of relinquishing state sovereignty. Since the 1970s, many institutions in the public sphere have transitioned from state control to the private or corporate sphere, prompting important questions about sovereignty. One of the central concerns regarding the shift to privatization and corporate interest is that sovereign government responsibilities are relinquished which represents a form of outsourcing, hence undermining government control. By letting go of power, the state removes a level of accountability from the service, which results in a severing of the social contract towards its citizens. And often the justification for devolving power are the efficiency gains through cost cutting. This raises long-term ethical concerns because if penal functions can be privatized, it would set a precedent that other sovereign functions of state can equally be hived off to the private sector. Historically, the right to punish has always been a government's responsibility because this unique power grants the state the necessary authority to maintain law and order for the greater good of society. And by transferring this authority to private corporations, it weakens the accountability for these services. It also reduces government oversight and compromises the authority of the state. Now, critique two of prison privatization is the prioritization of profits and efficiency over accountability. Essentially, has it been worthwhile? When efficiency becomes the main objective of decision-making, the trade-off between accountability and efficiency may not be worthwhile because the prison system does not fulfill its promise of cutting government costs. As US incarceration rates have multiplied, so has the system's economic cost. The United States currently spends a staggering 81 billion US dollars a year on mass incarceration at local, state and federal level, according to data from the Bureau of Justice, April 2021. And this figure suggests that the neoliberal argument of efficiency via market forces falls rather short, as there is growing evidence that the system does not actually save any money. And to explore this point further, let's consider some of the arguments to evaluate the effectiveness of private corporations in the prison system. The first argument relates to the lowering of costs. Advocates for the use of private prisons believe they lower costs and improve quality by introducing competition. In theory, this is because of market competition and the absence of bureaucratic constraints, which creates an efficient prison operation system. 
Although the criminal justice system is overwhelmingly a public system with private prison companies making up around 8% of the entire system, the extent to which private firms compete with each other for prison contracts is actually fairly minimal because there are fewer firms in the business. At one point, competition between firms may have played a greater role. For instance, in 1999, there were 12 for-profit firms managing adult correctional facilities. But since then, eight of those competitors have been absorbed by other companies and only two new firms have entered the market. So this level of market concentration raises concerns that private firms do not face sufficient competition to achieve the desired benefits of lowering prices and higher quality of service. Overall, though, research on whether private prisons actually improve efficiency is limited because private corporations are under no obligation to share sensitive data. Also, the data that is available certainly does not contain strong evidence that private prisons are more efficient than their public counterparts. In practice, the primary mechanism to achieve cost savings in private prisons is to offer lower salaries for correctional officers. Around 70% of a prison facility's operating costs go to staff salaries. Furthermore, correction officers in in private facilities generally work in a non-unionised environment, which makes hiring and firing easier, and are paid a staff salary around $7,000 less than the average public officer's salary. In addition to paying less per officer, private prisons also tend to hire fewer officers in order to reduce the total number of staff on the payroll. Private prisons report an average of one officer per 6.9 inmates compared to one officer per 4.9 inmates in public facilities. They experience double the level of inmate-on-inmate violence, have an approximate 58 hours less in training, and an average staff turnover rate approaching three times the rate of public prisons. And so let's move on to the second argument to evaluate the effectiveness of private businesses in the prison system, the quality of services argument. And one key measure is how private prisons address important issues such as improving rehabilitation and minimizing the concept of recidivism. Now, recidivism refers to the tendency for offenders to revert to their previous mode of criminal behavior after leaving a correctional facility. Michael Teague, Senior Lecturer in Criminology at the University of Derby, provides useful commentary on this point. He writes in his 2013 article, Neoliberalism, Prisons and Probation in the United States and England and Wales, that neoliberal goals have undermined the liberal approach to rehabilitation. He believes that this ideological shift has, quote, prioritised punitiveness, deprioritised rehabilitation, fostered a growing incarcerated population and engaged in the pursuit of private profit at the expense of social justice. So this fundamental shift towards higher profits has led private prisons to cut costs in socially unacceptable ways. This cost-cutting sustains a pattern of penal regression which lowers the quality of services and makes the prison system more harsher. Regression can lead to abuses for both prisoners and staff. For instance, staff, there is low pay, high turnover rates and poor training are norms at many private institutions. In addition, there is the added problem of inexperienced staff, which leads to cases of prisoner abuse by the staff. As quality decreases, research suggests that there is a growing tolerance for violence as a means of social control within prisons 
and the replacement of rehabilitation with coercion. Due to the lack of government oversight, this means that private prisons are open to further opportunities for corruption. The overriding focus on profits creates a system whereby private businesses have no incentive to cut incarceration rates and no incentive to rehabilitate those that they are meant to care for. One example of this is the incentive system provided in private prison contracts, which pays on the basis of the number of beds utilised and therefore offers no incentive to produce socially desirable outcomes such as low recidivism rates or to promote a change in policies that would help those convicted actually leave prison. This implies that the, the PIC is directly responsible for distorting sentencing policy, contradicting the very foundation of the prison system, which is to rehabilitate convicted individuals for the greater good of society. And according to the National Institution of Justice, US prisons have a recidivism rate of 77% in terms of those prisoners re-arrested within five years. The inevitable outcome is that prisoners remain trapped within the criminal justice system, facing prolonged incarceration, not for new crimes, but for technical violations of their probation condition. And what we've seen is that slashing rehabilitation programs can make it difficult for convicts to escape cycles of crime because it magnifies the sense of dispossession already experienced by inmates, removing any power to address the circumstances which led to their conviction in the first place. Another major effect of the regressive characteristics of the prison system is that recidivism tends to affect marginalised groups more drastically. There is a disproportionate rate of incarceration among marginalised communities, particularly those of colour or indigenous background. Upon their release, it's even more difficult for them to stay out of the prison system because they must fund their own rehabilitation from limited personal resources. So clearly privatisation has changed the focus of correctional incentives by subordinating the prison system to market-oriented goals. Furthermore, the drive towards greater efficiency commodifies individuals and generates commercial value from services which were originally designed to operate within the public realm. The prison system essentially transforms prisoners into components of a vast profit centre. As David Harvey notes, quote, to presume that markets and market signals can best determine all allocative decisions is to presume that everything can, in principle, be treated as a commodity. Commodification presumes the existence of property rights over processes and social relations, that a price can be put on them and that they can be traded subject to legal contract. The market is presumed to work as an appropriate guide, as an ethic for all human action. So while the neoliberal framework may not be problematic in all cases, there are times when they create morally unacceptable circumstances. And David Harvey states further, quote, every society sets some bounds on where commodification begins and ends. Where the boundaries lie is a matter of contention. And now let's move to critique three of the prison privatization system, which is the effects of worker exploitation. One of the main effects of the expansion of the PIC is the system of contracted labor, which exploits inmates while benefiting a wide range of other economic actors within the private prison system. For instance, according to academic and scholar Cynthia Young in a 2000 article entitled Punishing Labor, Why Labor Should Oppose the, the Prison Industrial Complex, 
Prisoners in private prisons have been tasked with producing goods and services for a host of private companies, including AT&T, Boeing, Revlon, Starbucks, Eddie Bauer, Target, McDonald's, Microsoft, Nordstrom, Kmart, JCPenney, Toys R Us, and many other companies. It is fair to say that many people in the United States have probably purchased goods made by prisoners, have talked on the phone with call centers staffed by prisoners, or have probably eaten produce grown by prisoners without even knowing it. However, the most troubling aspect is that this form of labor relations is either underpaid or it is unregulated and unpaid. Inmates generally receive far less than minimum wage for a day's work, and some of that money may even be withheld by the state in order to cover incarceration costs, which often means that they make less than $1 per hour for their work. In addition, there are few regulations within private prisons concerning the maximum number of hours that inmates can work. There is no sick leave or time off, no federal oversight in terms of workplace safety. Also, they are threatened with loss of privileges such as visitor rights if they refuse to work. In some states, prisoners who refuse to work can face solitary confinement as punishment. And there is a distinct lack of regulation in private prisons regarding labour rights such as minimum wage, the hours worked or overtime. This inevitably makes prison labour the logical choice for companies seeking to reduce labour costs as part of their complex globalised operations. This in turn creates a displacement effect because low-skilled jobs are pushed out of minimum wage-paying factories and into private prisons where more goods can be produced at a much lower cost. And even more insidious, those US corporations that use private prison labour in domestic markets benefit from a rise in complementary sales because their goods are now labelled as made in the USA. In addition, they benefit from subsidies in transportation costs and fees for bringing products made abroad back to the United States for the reassembling of components and their repackaging. Furthermore, this system of prison labour is self-propagating because the prison will continue to replicate the process provided it is profitable. Private prisons save the US government substantial amounts of money in housing and feeding incarcerated individuals. And now critique four of prison privatization, which is the health effects of long-term incarceration, specifically the, the lasting damage to mental health. Incarceration can trigger and exacerbate symptoms of mental health, and these effects can last many years after someone leaves the prison gates. Although there is an ongoing public debate about the large number of inmates with mental health disorders, less attention is paid to the ways in which incarceration perpetuates this problem by worsening the symptoms of mental illness. Research shows that while it varies from person to person, incarceration is linked to mood disorders and major depressive disorders. The carceral environment can be extremely damaging to mental health by removing any sense of meaning and purpose from the lives of inmates. In addition, the appalling conditions common in prisons and jails, such as overcrowding, solitary confinement and routine exposure to violence, can have further negative effects. Researchers have even theorized that incarceration can lead to post-incarceration syndrome, a syndrome which is similar to PTSD, meaning that even after serving their official sentence, many people continue to suffer the mental effects. Many of the main characteristics of incarceration are linked to negative mental health outcomes, including disconnection from family, a loss of autonomy, 
boredom and lack of purpose and unpredictability of the prison surroundings. So let's wrap up now with some concluding remarks. This episode has examined the transformation of the United States prison system from state control to a privatized corporate operation as a result of being subordinated to the rationale of the neoliberal framework. Neoliberalism as an ideology highlights the cold efficiency of the economic argument thus creating the perfect opportunity to implement an agenda of privatization in the prison system. And from a perverse perspective, there is a detached brilliance or genius to the neoliberal rationale. Its emphasis on deregulation and its byproduct of efficiencies have brought to an end many public programs and institutions which were either grossly inefficient or counterproductive in a grand attempt to improve overall service levels. However, a focus on economic efficiency, while important, does not take into account the effects on the inmates, their families and their communities. Indeed, some commentators have argued that the profit motive creates perverse incentives that lead to overcrowding by cutting costs and reducing the quality of life for those who are incarcerated. Furthermore, the corporations that manage these facilities earn vast revenues, while individuals in their custody stay incarcerated for longer periods of time. Others take issue with the notion of corporations profiting from state functions, such as punishment, which should never have been delegated in the first place. Private firms that own and manage jails, prisons and immigration detention facilities have been under scrutiny for many years, especially since the industry emerged in the mid-1980s. However, despite years of growth for this industry, in 2019, Wall Street banks began to distance themselves from financing the PIC, especially given recent events where immigration detention centers received negative publicity amidst an outcry over the Trump administration's detention policies to separate undocumented migrant children from their parents. But interestingly, the executive orders carried out by the Biden administration in January 2021 do not affect facilities run by the US Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE for short. That's because ICE is part of the Department of Homeland Security, not Department of Justice. While undocumented individuals housed in ICE detentions peaked at more than 55,000 under President Trump and dropped significantly during COVID events, that number is on the rise again. And more than 25,000 people are currently held in ICE detention as of August 2021, and about 80% of ICE detention beds are still owned or managed by for-profit firms. And yet the Biden administration has not made any attempt to eliminate ICE contracts with for-profit firms. In today's episode, we've been reminded that the proliferation of prisons in the United States is one piece of the neoliberal framework called the globalization of capital. During the early 1980s, President Reagan was instrumental in laying the foundation for neoliberalism by introducing structural adjustments to the US economy. This involved massive cuts in social services, privatization of state-run industries, the repeal of labor agreements in relation to working conditions and minimum wage, and the dismantling of trade laws which protected the domestic economy. Curiously though, this process of structural adjustment did not apply to government budgets for police, military or prison expenditures, which have all seen marked increases. In the contemporary era, the hallmarks of many inner city and low income urban neighborhoods 
are the following. Crumbling infrastructure such as poor roads and highways, failing school systems, a lack of after-school programs, libraries, parks and recreational facilities and drug treatment centres are all closed. However, observers will see more police stations and a greater number of paramilitary-style police units. Often the only social service available to neglected neighbourhoods is the prison system. And there is a wealth of social research which clearly suggests that prisons are not reducing crime but instead are creating deeper fractures in already vulnerable communities. Disadvantaged people of colour are being incarcerated in highly disproportionate numbers, mainly for non-violent crimes. But American society does not feel any safer because criminals are becoming essentially a sideshow. The scapegoats for a weakened economy and a vanishing social structure, even the presence of rehabilitation is quickly disappearing from America's penal philosophy. Many commentators are now questioning the relevance of rehabilitation especially when inmates lack the marketable skills to apply for jobs in a complex globalized economy. And even those that can bypass this hurdle have no opportunity to create wealth on a minimum wage level, as dictated by the neoliberal framework. As education and prison welfare programs are cut back, or in most cases eliminated altogether, prisons are now becoming vast overcrowded holding tanks, or worse, industrial factories behind bars. Because as prison labour continues to undercut wages, this is something which affects all working Americans, especially those from low-income backgrounds. The prison industrial complex has established itself as a lucrative component in the growth of the US economy. For instance, the annual service cost of the PIC is 81 billion US dollars, according to prisonpolicy.org. And this figure addresses only the cost of running the corrections system, the prisons, jails, parole and probation systems. Almost half of the money spent on running the correctional system goes to paying staff. By its very nature, this group becomes an influential lobby that maintains a vested interest in preventing prison reform and its influence is often protected even when prison populations falls. This is a clear reminder of the pernicious nature of the corporate philosophy which has infected the US prison system under the benevolent gaze of market forces and efficiency. Prisons are now micro-markets in the guise of giant fortresses which exploit their given natural resource, the prison population, and anything which hinders the drive for economic profit is to be routed out and destroyed. And that's all we have time for in today's episode. Many thanks for listening to Good Morning Canada. I really appreciated your company today. And as always, I'll see you next time, Wednesdays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 noon Eastern. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Good Morning Canada. Please join NAVC and NAVM for another great program next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time and 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you soon.